be with you all this evening. Thank you for coming out and being here. Um, our text today is from Romans chapter 1. And um, while we are going to be looking specifically at verses 16 and 17, those verses form a thesis for the Apostle Paul as he's entering into the book of Romans. He's kind of setting forth what his subject is before going into the letter. So we're going to look at that subject briefly, and then we're going to launch into the first few chapters of Romans to see those things specifically in a little bit more detail. But the book of Romans is a very deep book. And I thought I would start this evening by reading um, a little bit from a prologue to the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. And this was in Tyndall's New Testament. And some of y'all are new believers. Some of y'all have been in the faith for a while. But there's an invitation here for all of us to spend time in the book of Romans. Listen to what it says. For as much as this epistle is the principle and most excellent part of the New Testament, and most pure evangelion, which is another word it's taken from the Greek for the word gospel. It's the most pure gospel. That is to say, glad tidings, and that we call gospel, and also is a light and a way unto the whole scripture. I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it by writ and, by, and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, and the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. That was published back in the 1530s, the first Greek, um, the first English New Testament from the Greek. And those words come to us today. It's an invitation for us to give heed to the book of Romans because the book of Romans sets forth to us a very detailed view of the gospel. Now, for many of us here in the United States, the gospel is a first right into Christianity. We hear the gospel. It's presented to us maybe in a gospel track, um, maybe in a few basic sentences. The gospel is presented, and we are urged to believe it, to receive the gospel, to accept it. And having done that, we'll open into this realm of deeper things. New things about God, new things about the Christian life, um, whatever that might look like based on your background. And for many of us, the gospel is something that was in the past, in our Christian experience. But the Apostle Paul loved the gospel. In this epistle, he starts off saying he was an apostle separated unto the gospel of God. That was his whole ministry was consumed with proclaiming the gospel. And as he's writing to the Romans, this is the capital of the world, and he's writing his willingness, his desire to preach the gospel, he says, to you that are at Rome also. In the middle of all the fanfare of political life, of economic life, the center of the culture of that time, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. In, in this book, he sets forth a reason. Why is it that a man as smart as the Apostle Paul, as intellectual as the Apostle Paul, a powerful man, why is it that he is consumed with one message, the good news of the gospel? And that reason is set forth for us here. And if we want to have the Apostle Paul's fervency, his willingness to say for ourselves that we have been set apart for the gospel, does that characterize my life? Does the gospel describe me? Am I willing to be unashamed of the gospel in a world that was much like his world? They hated the gospel then too. Are we willing to be unashamed for it? If so, we have to be willing to understand it, not just the basic elements of it, which is important. We aren't, under, we aren't throwing those things away, but we're saying the gospel is a deep thing. It's a beautiful thing. Like we just now read in that prologue, the more you study, study the gospel of the more you study the gospel, the more you study the book of Romans, you'll understand more, more clearly. Your soul will be fed. And most importantly, you will be built up in it. Mm-hmm. What should characterize us all? The central thing of our lives should be the gospel. And why you see many times groups of people coming together around something outside of the gospel is because they don't understand. It's, the gospel's not a big enough magnet to pull everybody to it. So they have to come around some other thing. We are, I was telling them, we don't want to get to the point where we are the first Baptist church of the unvaccinated. Right. Or the first Baptist church of the vaccinated. Right? Whatever, whatever you think on that issue, our centrality, our identity must not be in some issue outside of the person of Jesus Christ Amen. and the gospel of who He is. And so that calls for us to understand it. The gospel needs to be set forth in a powerful way so that it becomes the gospel that characterizes us. Mm-hmm. So having said those things, let's dive into this introduction to the book of Romans. And we are going to be going very fast and we're going to be zooming out, seeing things very far away. But that's helpful sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you get into a forest, you start seeing all the trees, you're looking at the moss, you're seeing the different, you know, you know, the, the, the conifers, the, the evergreens, the deciduous trees. You're focusing on all these different things. And sometimes it's helpful to zoom out like, oh, that's what the whole forest looks like. And that's what we're going to try to do somewhat here in the, gospel, the epistle to the Romans. So in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Unto, to, unto everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So let's observe four things about the gospel. Number one, Paul says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The gospel is the power of God to save. And the ability of the gospel is seen in that it is able to save everyone that believes in it. That is a powerful statement. It is a very controversial statement. Here is a message. The gospel means good news. Here is a message that is so powerful that it is able to save every 
one that believes in it. And he says, it's not just the Jews. It's not just the Greeks, the Gentiles. It is the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews and the Gentiles. Every person, regardless of their identity, is able to be saved in the message of the gospel. It's the power of God. God is at work in the gospel, displaying himself. That's one of the reasons why the gospel is so deep, so beautiful, because God is displaying himself. The greatness of God is seen in the gospel, which is why when the Apostle Paul finishes his whole theological section on the gospel, he says, Oh, the... Let me read it because my mind's going blank and I don't want to mess it up. Romans chapter 11, the final verses. He finishes describing the whole section on the gospel and he begins to praise God. Why is he praising God? Because the gospel shows forth the glory of God. It is the gospel of the glory of God. It's the gospel that reveals Christ. It's the gospel that shows the glories of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Those are all biblical terms for what the gospel is. Paul, having expounded the gospel, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him And to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel is the power of God because God is revealed in it. It presents to us God himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel is the power of God because it is divinely appointed. It is a means that God has instituted that is wholly sufficient wholly adequate and able to save everyone. It is the the only means that God has provided in order to rescue fallen man. That should make us really stop. It is the only means provided by which we can find salvation. And Paul here says it's powerful because it's able to save everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God. Secondly, the gospel's power lies in the fact that it reveals the righteousness of God. Look what he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Look what he says in verse 17. Here's a reason given for its power. For therein, in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. (coughs) The gospel reveals God's righteousness, Paul says, and that's something we're going to get into a little more. It reveals his character as one who is able to pardon iniquity and yet be just in doing so. Here is a God who is able to take the most vile sinners, as Paul says in First um, Timothy, it is a worthy, it's a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am chief. That was a saying of the early church. Christ is able to save the worst sinners. And he is still able to do so in a way that vindicates his own character. Right. 
The gospel's power lies in that it reveals God's righteousness. But it is also a righteousness provided for us. Here is not our attempt to gain a righteousness for ourselves. It is God's provision of a righteousness for us. And we're going to get into more of that. Thirdly, Paul says this. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now, how is it that man relates to the righteousness of God? Paul says it is revealed from faith to faith. Now, that little phrase right there is difficult to understand. What does it mean, from faith to faith? Well, if nothing else, it tells us that the only way by which man can relate to the righteousness of God is on the basis of faith. Faith is the starting point, and faith is the goal. Faith is the whole and the only way by which man can relate to God's righteousness. That is the third thing. And here's one of the most beautiful things. Paul says this, As it is written, The just shall live by faith. Here's the fourth point. But before I give you it, I'm going to explain something. Our English does us a disservice. English, we have the term righteousness, and we have the term justice. Well, in Greek, it's all one term. In Spanish, we are blessed to have one term. It's la justicia de Dios, the justice of God. So here we have a word that doesn't look like righteousness. But it's the same related Greek word. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That righteousness is related to, communicated to man, given to man by faith. And then look what Paul says. As it is written, the just, or... The righteous one shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God into salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God. That righteousness is communicated to us on the basis of faith. Now what does Paul say in this phrase? The righteousness of God and faith impact the believer in such a way then look what he becomes characterized by. The one who receives the gospel becomes the righteous one who lives by faith. In other words, when the gospel, when the gospel touches you, when you truly receive the gospel, it will do two things. You will become characterized by righteousness and you will become characterized by faith. Or you will be the just who lives by faith. Your life principle is faith, and that righteousness becomes characteristic of who you are. Is that a powerful gospel? A message so powerful that it impacts you in such a way that it stamps you entirely. The just... The righteous one shall live by faith. That's a glorious gospel. Now let's dig into that a little deeper. That's Paul's introduction to the epistle to the Romans. Now before we get into looking at this a little more closely, let me ask you a question. 
Do only good people go to heaven? That is sometimes a question that is posed. Sometimes um, you'll see it on Facebook, you know, do good people go to heaven or do bad people go to heaven? And oftentimes you'll hear people say, only bad people go to heaven. And the reasoning works like this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that do with good. Right? That's biblical. And if there is going to be people in heaven, it means it's going to be bad people. Now, is that true? It's true. But what happens is when we only think of the gospel as a way for bad people to go to heaven, it actually leaves out part of what the gospel does. You see, the gospel... Let me go backwards a second. What truly happens is this. And throughout scripture, we have psalms that talk about who will dwell in the presence of God. Now, in the presence of God, is this their rag muffin group of sinners in the presence of God? People in heaven that look like a bunch of publicans and sinners. Is that what they look like? The Bible tells us that only righteous ones are in the presence of God. Only the pure are in the presence of God. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek. What does it say? For they shall see God. No, blessed are the pure in heart, he said. They shall see God. That's the problem. It's not that the gospel is this get out of life and into heaven for free card. The gospel is more powerful than that. Because the gospel is a way by which God takes ragamuffin group of people. A bunch of harlots, a bunch of publicans, a bunch of sinners, a bunch of people like me. It takes us. And it doesn't just transport us directly into heaven. The Bible says it makes them first righteous. The, the truest, most complete answer to the question, do good people go to heaven? The answer is yes. Only good people go to heaven. And that's the dilemma for every one of us. Because we are unrighteous. There is none righteous. We cannot, we are unfit to go to heaven. We are, it's impossible for God to receive us. So the gospel is God's scheme by which he takes sinful people and he makes them righteous. So righteous that they have a place in heaven. That is the beauty of the gospel. A gospel that transforms us. As we said a second ago, so that we become characterized by righteousness. Now, we're going to look at three ways by which the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? The first way is given to us in Romans 1 through halfway through Romans 3. And that is this. The righteousness of God is revealed in His wrath against man's unrighteousness. The first part of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul comes as a prosecutor. He's laying charges against every human being. He begins with the lawless, the, those who live their life in disregard of God. From there he moves into those who are moral, those who are righteous in their own standing. To put it in biblical terms, in Jesus' day, they would have been the Pharisees. 
And then he specifically addresses the Jews. You who are a Jew, you who know the law of God, are you righteous? Are you good enough to be in God's presence? So the Apostle Paul begins as a lawyer word, bringing charges against a person. He begins to indict mankind, all humanity. He says, the wrath of God, in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul approaches man not as a victim of one who sins because he doesn't have enough knowledge of what is right and wrong. You see, that is oftentimes how we like to excuse ourselves. If God wanted me to do what was right, if God wanted me to believe on Him, then God has a responsibility to show something of Himself to me in order to hold me responsible. And Paul is here saying, God is holding you responsible because you are not a victim. Rather, he says here, you hold the truth. And the idea there is man is suppressing. He is seeking to override the truth that he knows of God in unrighteousness. Man has rejected the righteousness of God. Paul says in verse 20, in verse 21, that mankind knew God. What did they know of God? Paul says they looked around and they saw that there is a God who has all power. And they knew that that one who had all power was deity. And Paul says they did not respond in faith. They did not respond in gratitude. But instead they created other gods. They made gods that suited their own fancy and set those up in the place of the one true God. And in turn, God responds to man's unrighteousness by giving him more and more freedom to do as he pleases. One of the most sobering indictments, give some water. One of the most sobering indictments against mankind that Paul brings is in verse 32. And here Paul says that the that we having known the judgment of God. And there's the same Greek idea of righteousness. Having known the righteous judgment of God against those who do lawlessness. In other words, when we look out and we see people doing wrong things, the Bible tells us we know that God's judgment is on that. But you know where our unrighteousness is seen? We look out on that, and Paul says, we don't only do the same. Some of us wouldn't do those things. But look what he says. We have pleasure in them that do them. I have likened this to a person going to Nazi Germany. And this person might think well of himself, but he tours Nazi Germany and he wasn't one of those that was in ignorance of what was going on. He goes right through everything. He gets to see firsthand the wickedness that was taking place there. And he says to himself, well, I certainly wouldn't do it myself, but I can certainly see why they would. Or his heart takes pleasure in seeing the wickedness, the atrocities committed. What does that say about that person? He maybe never got his hands dirty. Maybe he was an upstanding citizen here in the United States. But the fact that you did not see those things and hate it tells you something about that heart. 
And you know what? That tells us something about my heart. You who get on the internet and look at things that you know the wrath of God is against those things and you just take delight in it. What does that say about your heart? You, oh, that's not me. I, I, I'm clean. God says, if you delight in that which is wicked, it speaks something about you. And in contrast to that, we have a holy God who sees the wickedness of this world and what comes up in his heart? Wrath. What would be the righteous posture for someone to take who tore who took a tour of Germany during the World War II and saw all those things? What would be the righteous response to that? Would it be sympathy? Would it be empathy with the Nazis? Would it be a desire to support them? Would it be humor? What should well up inside of us is a holy wrath against the wickedness that they were committing. And that's what God does. He sees our unrighteousness in wrath is what is in his heart. Because God is a holy God. So the fact that that doesn't, that doesn't always come up for us, speaks about us. In chapter 2, Paul goes into the moralness. He begins saying, you, you who instruct someone else. In other words, if you have enough knowledge to judge somebody else, you are guilty yourself. In other words, woe to you hypocrites. If you know enough to judge somebody else, you know enough to judge yourself. And against all of this backdrop of man's unrighteousness, whether it is in the name of moralism, whether it's in the name of Judaism, whether it's just flat out rebellion against God, Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against it. In God's wrath, he says this, in Romans chapter 2 and verse um, 5. After thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up, up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath in revelation of the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God. In other words, there will be a day of wrath and there will be a day of righteous judgment. And against that day, Paul says we as sinners are accumulating for ourselves as if it was a commodity, wrath. We are storing up this account of wrath that will be meted out to us, measured out to us, given to us on the day of wrath and of righteous judgment of God. So what does the gospel do? You say, that's not part of the gospel. That is not good news at all. Well, Paul calls it part of the gospel. He says this. Let me find it. He says in verse 16, In the day, this is that same day of wrath, in the day of the righteous judgment of God, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. What does he say? According to my gospel. The gospel comes forth, first of all, showing us God's righteousness in his wrath against our unrighteousness. I forgot to say something before. But when we talked about the gospel being the power of God and that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, the fact that this works for everybody tells us that this is the message we all need. 
There is one message that we all need. Our lack of righteousness is the worldwide problem. It's your problem. And God's righteousness is the worldwide solution. It's God's solution. This news of your unrighteousness is the news that you need to hear. This is the gospel. That God's wrath abides on you because of your unrighteousness. Then it does not stop there. Paul says, as he concludes this section in chapter 3, he says, there is none righteous. That same word. This family of Greek words, there's adjectives, there's nouns, there's verbs. But this whole family that are related of Greek words are found over 70 times in the epistle to the Romans. 70 times. And most of those are within a first few chapters. The Apostle Paul is hammering home this issue of righteousness. And there is none righteous. We have all come short. We've all fallen short. Unrighteousness characterizes my hands. Unrighteousness characterizes my mouth. Unrighteousness characterizes my mind, my heart, my feet. We are all unrighteous. Which is why the Bible tells us from the bottom of our foot to the crown of our head, there is nothing good in us. There is not one part of us that is righteous. There is none righteous. Not one. Having said that, Number two, God's righteousness is revealed as imputed to us by faith. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, verse 20, there shall no flesh be justified. There shall no flesh be made righteous in God's sight. In other words, because we have all forfeited righteousness, None of us can regain that for ourselves by our own works. Against that backdrop, Paul says, But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all And upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. What does this mean? God is providing a righteousness. It is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God without the law. It's not in contradiction to the law. But it's outside of the works of the law. We are not working to get it. It's the righteousness of God through faith of Jesus Christ. Upon all them that believe. In this chapter, Romans chapter 3, Paul gives three key words that help us to understand what imputed righteousness looks like. He says this in verse 24, Being justified, being made righteous, freely by God's grace, by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just or that He might be righteous in the justifier, the one who makes righteous 
them which believe in Jesus. What are these key words? Redemption, propitiation, and remission. Redemption has the idea of us being delivered by the payment of a price. It's a ransom. Have you ever heard of a king's ransom? A king taken in battle. The nation wants their king back. They pay a king's ransom. Paul says, we have been justified. We have been given a righteousness. The righteousness of God. The very perfection of God. The law-keeping character of God. We've been given that to us freely by grace through the purchasing redemption of Christ. That ransom purchased for us by the death of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter calls it the precious blood of Christ by which we are redeemed. We were not redeemed, Peter says, by corruptible things like silver or gold. That's not what our ransom was purchased with. But with the precious blood of Christ, a sacrifice given to purchase our, re- our freedom, our freedom from the demands of justice, our freedom from the power of sin. Redemption. Propitiation. What, how was the righteousness of God revealed in the first few chapters? What does God's righteousness look like as He beholds unrighteousness? It's wrath. Wrath. Revealed against ungodliness. What is propitiation? Propitiation is a sacrifice by which wrath is taken away. In other words, Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God slain by which the wrath of God was appeased. As the hymn says, Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, "'Tis done." He received upon himself the wrath that was worthily owed to us so that God's smile could be on us. Redemption, propitiation, remission. God passing over. No longer holding us accountable for our sins. In the Old Testament, there's this picture of God separating our sins as far as the east is from the west. Get on the middle of the equator, start running towards the east. You'll never get there. Turn around and run towards the west, you'll never get there. There's no connection between the east and the west. Paul, um, The word of God tells us, as far as the east is from the west. So far, as he, so far he has removed our iniquities from us. He has decided, chosen to ignore my sin. Another part of scripture, God tells us that he has cast our sins behind him. He has thrown them away. Never to remember them. He has forgotten them. As the other song says, he threw them into the sea of his forgetfulness. The sea where God has chosen to remember them no more. Remission. (coughs) Forgetting, ignoring our sin. How does God do this? It's all through the person of Jesus Christ. That is how God is righteous. 
and still the one who does that. How is it that God, a righteous God, a righteous judge, ignores sin through the work of Christ on our behalf? Chapter 4 shows us how the righteousness of God is communicated to us. Eleven times in this one chapter, the word is used, impute. Now our translation does us a disservice because it translates that several different ways. God counts us righteous. He reckons us righteous. He imputes righteousness to us. It's the same Greek word. God is imputing to us the righteousness of himself, the righteousness of Christ. Now, in chapter 4, the question is, how does he do that? What's the exchange? God gives us righteousness. What do we give to God? And Paul says nothing. Paul says this. If you go out and work, like most of us do, and get a paycheck in return, would we feel okay if our boss came to us and said, buddy, on Friday, right? Payday? If he came to us and said, friend, I thought I wanted to give you something. It's a gift of coming from the benevolence of my heart. And you look at it, and it's you know 40 times your hourly wage. You're like, this is not a gift. This is not a gift. You owe it to me. You could take your boss to court if he didn't give it to you, right? It's owed. The Apostle Paul says this. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace. Your boss doesn't give you grace when he gives you a paycheck. He says it's debt. He owes it to you. You worked, he gives it to you. But in God's economy, imputed righteousness comes to us on the basis of faith. To him that worketh not. God is not asking you to exchange to work, to labor, in order to get his righteousness. To him that worketh not, but simply believeth. On him who justifies, who makes righteous the ungodly. His faith is reckoned for righteousness. His faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David. What was the story of David? A man who, well, he's quoting from Psalm 32. David, a man who committed two capital sins. He killed a man. He committed adultery. And yet he was able to sing in the psalm. He says, blessed is he whose sin is forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. God has taken away our sin and he has put in its place the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he does so on the basis of faith. Friend, if you are trying to do something to earn God's righteousness, you have to give up. You cast yourself before Christ and you receive it on the basis of grace. It is the free gift of God being justified freely by His grace through the work of Christ Jesus. It is Christ having done these things for you in your place. Which is why the Apostle Paul finishes chapter 4 saying, these things, the, the case study of righteousness here in faith is the case study of Abraham. 
how Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And Paul says in verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. It wasn't just Abraham, but for us also. What does that mean? It's for you also. To whom it, to whom righteousness shall be imputed. What's the condition? If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Are you believing? Are you trusting Christ? Why? Why should you trust Christ? Paul says Christ was delivered for our offenses. He was delivered to die for my offenses. And then he was raised for my justification, for my righteousness. Why should you trust Christ? Because he did this for you. And if you believe, Paul says, it is yours. Isn't that beautiful? Righteousness imputed. This is justification by faith. Then chapter 5. And I'm connecting all these things so that you all will start a lifelong study of the book of Romans. You mean, you ask, what does that look like? What does it mean to study Romans? Well, it means to spend time in Romans. It means to think on Romans. It means to memorize Romans. You mean you can memorize Romans? You can memorize Romans. All 16 chapters? All 16 chapters. You might get rusty by the time you're done, but you can memorize all 16 chapters. And it will bless your soul. It will bless your soul. In chapter 5, Paul begins to show us the benefits that come from imputed righteousness. If God reckons me, if he counts me righteous, what does that mean? If God just calls me righteous, you mean God just calls you righteous? But you're not righteous. I know I'm not righteous, but God calls me righteous. Is that enough? Is it enough for God to just call me righteous? Does that get me anywhere? I don't know about you, but I look back at my past and I see my wickedness and it's scary to think of the things I've done, the things that I wish I hadn't done, the things I wish nobody knew about. I want to hide those things. God knows them. He calls me righteous. But how can I know that I'm righteous with God? Well, the only way you can know is if He calls you righteous. He's the ultimate judge. If I call you righteous, that doesn't count for much. If you call yourself righteous, it doesn't count for much. If we all get together and agree about ourselves that we're all righteous, it does not count for much. But if God calls you righteous... There's no higher court. It cannot be appealed. You have gone all the way to the Supreme Court and the judge said, you're righteous. Imputed righteousness. I'm just gifting it to you. I'm in essence tacking it onto you. So what comes from that? Are there benefits from being righteous? Paul says, absolutely. What was the fruit of Our unrighteousness and God's righteousness, wrath. How does chapter 5 open up? 
Therefore, being justified. We're back to the same subject. Being made righteous. <coughs> How? By faith. What do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. God is no longer at enmity with us. Paul goes on to tell us that God's love is on us. If he loved us when we were wicked, he loves us when we are righteous. That's what Paul says. And he gives us life. Throughout the end of Romans chapter 5, and Romans chapter 5 is a thick chapter with a lot of deep things in it, but Paul's telling us righteousness trumps sin. Righteousness trumps sin. If God gives you righteousness, if God gives you grace in Christ Jesus, there's nothing that overrides that. Which is why he calls it the gift of life. The gift of life in Christ Jesus. If you've made made righteous, you've got a gift of life in Christ Jesus. He gets all the way down to the end of this chapter. And I don't, I've never watched the musical, but you know that song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better? I Can Do Anything Better Than You? Y'all heard that? The Apostle Paul puts a little situation like that. He says, I like to think of it as just outdoing. It's an outdoing match. Paul says, As sin has reigned unto death. That was the fruit of sin. It reigned to death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. He says in verse 20, which is what I was trying to get to, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But here's what it says. Where sin abounded. Here is my pile of sin against God. Where sin abounded. It's huge. Grace did much more abound. My sin was here. Grace was higher yet. But what if my sin is here? What if my sin is like the Mount Everest of mountains of sin? Paul says, where sin abounds to the peak of Mount Everest. Grace goes over it yet. The righteousness of Christ is sufficient to make you right with God, to give you everlasting life, to give you peace with God. Justification by faith, imputed righteousness, is a beautiful subject. And if we were to stop there, we would be doing ourselves a disservice. We must delight ourselves in justification by faith. But what did we say at the beginning? The righteousness of God that is in the gospel, the faith by which we receive that gospel, what happens to the person who believes the gospel? His life becomes characterized by faith and by righteousness. You see, God calls me righteous. I'm esteemed as righteous. I'm counted righteous. How do you want to say that? That's what he says about me. But it would be an imperfect salvation is if, if all we got was a veneer of righteousness. And it is a sad thing that oftentimes in our Christian circles, that's where the gospel stops. And people fail to see this last very important point. 
that righteousness is not just imputed to us. The righteousness of God is revealed. And how is it revealed? The righteousness of God is thirdly fulfilled in us. You mean we don't just get it imputed to us, it actually becomes us? Paul says the righteousness of God becomes fulfilled in us. And to point that out, we have Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 8. And in each of these chapters, we have a picture of the Christian in a new position. He's no longer what he was. He is in Christ. All of these things have in common that this person is in Christ. How are we in Christ? By faith. We believe God. We believe in Jesus Christ and we are in Him. God looks on us as being in Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. But out of that reality, out of that spiritual reality of being in Christ, flows several things. And I want to give them to you. The first one is a different relationship with ourselves. Paul says, we died. I died. You mean, how did I die? Paul says, you died in Christ. Have you been baptized? Then Paul says, your baptism pictures. What is baptism ultimately? Paul says, your baptism is a picture of death. You died with Christ. But then you didn't stay down. You came back up. And Paul says, you have been raised to new life in Christ. Now, interestingly, in Romans chapter 4, God says he imputes righteousness to us. God is imputing it. He's counting us righteous. But now in Romans chapter 6, he calls us to impute something. Us to reckon something. It's the same Greek word. He says <coughs> in Romans chapter 6 verse 11, Likewise, reckon. That's the same word. Impute. Count yourself. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Impute yourself to have died with Christ. It's what the Apostle Paul did. I am crucified with Christ. I died. Nevertheless, I live. But it's no longer me. It's not I. Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, I live through the faith of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means. You are to impute that death to yourself. Why can't you live in sin? That's the whole question of Romans chapter 6. If God has called me righteous, and if God's grace is all the time over my sin, no matter how high my pile of sin gets, God's grace is higher still, then what's to keep me from going out and trying to sin so God's grace can just keep out doing my sinfulness? If God is glorified by my sinfulness, then why not? And Paul says, no, it's not, it's not supposed to work that way. Righteousness is now supposed to become fulfilled in you. You are to die to your sin. Why can't I do what I did before? Because I died. The wages of sin is death and I died in Christ. And now I'm living a new life. And in this new life, I'm living with Christ. I'm living in Christ. 
I'm living in His righteousness. And I can no longer fulfill the lusts of my flesh. Those have died. It's an old life. It's not a reality for me anymore. You see, what began in justification is now becoming fulfilled in time and space in my life. I'm reckoning myself to have died and that Christ is now living in me. Secondly, it's a different relationship with sin. It's a different relationship to ourselves. We died. Christ is now living in us. Secondly, it's a different relationship with sin. He says in verse 12 of 6, Let not sin therefore reign. A new idea. Sin reigning like a king in our lives. Jesus said, He who commits sin is a servant of sin. It's this picture of all of us by nature being bound to sin. William Tyndall described it. He said, You might as well try to get away from chains tied to a pole as try to get away from the sin and from the devil. Have any of you of you all in the flesh as a lost person tried to escape the bonds, the, 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 uh, the binding, the bonds, excuse me, the bonds of your sin? Have you ever tried to get away from that and experienced it holding on to you? I, I oftentimes use the picture of a drug addict. A drug addict, especially where I lived in West Virginia, they don't get into drugs and they think drugs are a great thing. They know drugs not a good thing. All you do is just walk around and look at people that are on drugs and you know drugs not a good thing. You see the sunken in cheeks. You see the faces just covered with sores. You see the erratic, spastic movements of people on drugs. You see the people that just seem to have no brain cells left because of drugs. So... It doesn't take a brainiac to look at them and be like, I don't think drugs are a good thing. And they get into drugs. Like all of us did. We all know that. Sin was a bad thing. We all jumped right in at the deep end of the pool. Just like a drug addict did. He jumps in. And then he starts experiencing how bad drugs are. It's hurting him. It's hurting his relationships. His wife, his children. He doesn't have that relationship. He's in jail. He's stealing He realizes it's bad. Well, then let your drugs go. Stop doing drugs. I know, I need to stop doing drugs. I'm not going to do drugs anymore. Well, good. And what do they go? They go back to it. What keeps them going back to it? Is someone forcing them? No. It's love. Love for what drugs do for them. It's some kind of connection with drugs that binds them to it. That's you with your sin. That's me with my sin. I experienced that. Sins, besetting sins in my life as a lost person that I knew were harmful for me and I purposed to let them go and I go back to them. That's the lordship, the rule that sin has over us as lost people. You can't get away from it. And Paul says here, and and here's something that boggles my mind. I wish I could explain it. I've, I've thought on it and I've, tried to articulate what it means and I can only do it very badly. But in this case and in the next case about the law, Paul says this, why shouldn't we sin anymore? Why shouldn't sin have dominion, kingship over us? He says, because you are not under law. You're under grace. In other words, in Christ, The grace of God that comes to us in Christ enables us to 
be free to do righteousness in a way that we could not do when we were under the law. The same thing is there. Forsake your sin. Paul calls us to do the righteous things of the law. He calls on us to do that. We'll see that in chapter 7. He wants us to do righteousness. In the law defines righteousness. He's not telling us to just forget the law and go do whatever you want to do. He wants us to fulfill the law. But yet he recognizes that the law in and of itself does not enable us to fulfill it. The way Christ in his grace and in his salvation now enables us to do it. There is a rule of Christ and of grace that now enables me to forsake my sin. Which changed? Has that sin changed? The sin was still the same. It's got the same attractions. Which changed? The law that prohibited it? No, I still know I need to let go of that. But the grace of God that comes to us in Christ, it's a new principle of life, a new way of looking at the law that enables us to now do what is well-pleasing. So Paul says on that basis, because you're not under the law, the law is no longer hovering over you as an enemy. Christ is your righteousness. The law is no longer over you telling you to do something that you and your flesh cannot do. Christ is with you. His grace is given to you. Now live in that newness of life and do no, no longer be bound to sin. No longer obey sin. No longer yield your members, Paul says, your arms, your legs, your mind, your eyes, your mouth. Don't let your mouth, your eyes, your heart be servants of sin. Because sin is no longer your king. Instead, yield yourself. Surrender yourself as a servant to God and to righteousness, is what Paul tells us. Yield your members, servants to righteousness. Your mouth, Paul says, it's not yours to do what you want to do anymore. It's not sin's mouth anymore to just say what it wants to say, the selfish things, the the ugly things, the... The harsh things, the untruthful things, the blasphemous, it's not yours. Your mouth, Paul says, yield it to God as a member of righteousness. Your mind, give it to God. Hold it captive. It's no longer sins. It's got to think righteousness. Surrender it to God. Yield it to God. Make it an instrument of righteousness. Your eyes, your hands. Do you see how... Righteousness starts becoming stamped onto us. Our relationship to ourself has changed. We died in Christ. We're living in Christ. Our relationship to sin has changed. We are no longer under sin as a slave. We are now slaves to Christ and to righteousness. Thirdly, Paul says, our relationship to the law is different. Paul in chapter 7 says, you who understand the law, he says, a woman who has a husband... She's not just free to go off and marry somebody else. If she does that, she's an adulteress, Paul says. But, here's a condition. If her husband dies, what does she become? She becomes a widow, right? Now she's free to marry somebody else. Paul says the death of Christ on our behalf has enabled us to break a relationship with the law. You can't just get away from the law. Have any of you all tried, I think there's a, this movement of like sovereign citizens. Like we are a citizen and we're sovereign to ourselves. Like I'm my own king. Y'all seen anything about that? 
It's ludicrous. Okay? Paul says it doesn't work that way. You can't just walk out here in the middle of Paris and say, I have a law to myself. I am going to no longer recognize the laws of Paris. I no longer recognize the police. I no longer recognize the United States government. They have nothing to do. Does that work? Paul says no. But Paul says, in Christ, this is what he says. In verse 4, 7 verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. We're no longer bound to the law like we were in the flesh. We're married to Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean, Paul? To no longer be bound to the law, but be married to Christ. Look what he says. Even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Listen to what he says in the next. For when we were in the flesh, before you were saved, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law. We are no longer under the law the way we were before. That being dead, or being dead to that wherein we were held. And here's the point of being married to Christ. That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When we were in the flesh, the law was this rule that ruled over us that we just tried our best to just squeak by and get, get by with whatever we could and not get caught. We knew that there were things we should have been doing that we weren't doing. We knew we were doing bad things that we shouldn't have been doing. And we were okay with that. Now, like I said about our relationship with sin, our relationship to the law is different. Christ comes to us. We are under grace. What does that mean? It means that now that we are no longer under the law in a way that we have to fulfill it in order to be right with God. We are under grace in that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. That frees us from the law. Free from the law. So that we can now serve God in the newness of the Spirit with a heart. We are not trying to achieve righteousness in a right standing with God. That's given to us. We are now serving out of love. Serving because of grace. Serving in newness of Spirit, Paul says. Not in the oldness of the letter. How is the last way that I want to just emphasize by which righteousness is fulfilled in us. Paul says we no longer, this is Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are, here's the key point of all these, in Christ Jesus. Is this not you out on your own trying to do these things? There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Now how do those who are in Christ Jesus walk? Who walk not after the flesh, we have a new relationship to ourselves, a new relationship with sin, a new relationship to the law of God, and now we walk in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? He said the, the, that word there has a sense of the rule. The rule of the Spirit of Christ, of life in Christ Jesus. Christ rule over you by His Spirit has made you free from the rule of sin and death. Look what he says. For what the law could not do, 
in that it was weak through the flesh. The law was the perfect standard of God's righteousness. The law was a perfect representation of what God wants you to do. Right? It was good. But what it could not do, Paul says, is make us right with God. It was weak because of us. We were the weak link falling short of the glory of God. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He came, He lived a life of perfection for us. He condemned sin in the flesh, not just so that the righteousness could be imputed to us. Look what Paul says in verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What does that mean to not walk after the flesh? Paul says it means we are no longer carnally minded. What are the works of the flesh? Paul tells those things in Galatians. The works of the flesh are made manifest. It's lasciviousness, selfishness, all the sins that beset us. Those are the works of the flesh. And we, we, we purge our hearts and minds of those things. We, we no longer set our hearts and minds on the things of the flesh. He says, but now we put our hearts on the things of the Spirit. You mean I had to think? about spiritual things, about good things? Paul says, yes. If you think on the flesh, you're going to die. You see, righteousness has to be fulfilled in you. The gospel doesn't short-circuit at imputation. The, The gospel, for it to be effectual, it carries on through to fulfillment. And the way for it to be fulfilled is, your heart has to be set on spiritual things. And so the call is for us to collide with the gospel in such a powerful way that you, that me, on our deathbed, in our obituary, could be written, he lived by faith. Everything was by faith. What does that mean? It means to be in Christ. All these things, dying to your flesh, not living under sin, not living under the law, but under the grace. It's all faith. You see, your faith is active in each one of these things. You're believing what Christ has done for you. You're believing who you are in Christ. That's faith. You're thinking on things of the Spirit instead of the things of the flesh. It's faith. You're characterized by faith. And that faith is involved in making it so that you are righteous. Are we achieving righteousness for ourselves? It's imputed to us. But then, it is fulfilled in us. So who goes to heaven? It's good people. Only good people. And praise God that God has come up with a scheme so powerful that it is effectual for everyone that believes. It's effectual for you. If you will believe on Him who raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. He was delivered for your offenses. Do you believe? He was delivered for your offenses. He was raised for your justification. Believe. And find these things fulfilled in your life. Thank you for listening. And may the Lord bless this word to our hearts. Grateful to be with you. Grateful to see what the Lord is doing here in Paris. And may the Lord continue to work in each heart. And what He has begun, He will fulfill. So persevere.
Amen. Walk forward in what Christ is doing in you. It's a blessing to meet you all. I've gotten to meet a few of you all in person. Tonight's the first time for some of you all. Thank you for coming. And we'll look forward to being with you again next time. God bless you.